The reading is taken from uh, Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 11, and verses 9 to 13. There's no PowerPoint, so if you want to grab a Bible, just follow it. It's a brief reading. Peter's going to be covering quite a lot of material in his uh, talk in a few minutes' time. So Luke, chapter 11, and we're looking at verses 9 to 13. And this is Jesus speaking, and he says this. So I say to you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? May God add his blessing to that reading. Amen. I'm going to talk uh, this morning about uh, understanding spirituality, the Jesus way. Spirituality is a term that gets bandied around a lot these days, often without much definition. And if you learn one thing about philosophers this morning, it's that they love definitions. It keeps everything nice and neat and tidy in the sock drawer of our ideas. Well, I was doing some writing on this subject of defining spirituality, and it struck me that the the New Testament has a lot to say about this, perhaps unsurprisingly. Consider, for example, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. This is uh, just at Pentecost when Peter, here in Rembrandt's painting of him, has given uh, the first uh, evangelistic sermon uh, in Jerusalem after Pentecost. And at the end of that sermon, this is the passage that describes the people's reaction to what he had just preached. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Well, notice first of all that there's an element here about beliefs. When the people heard this, heard what Peter had preached to them, principally about Jesus' death and resurrection, and what that meant about who Jesus was. And they had, on the basis of that testimony, the eyewitness testimony that Peter gave them, they had obviously, or at least some of them, come to believe something about Jesus. But in response to what they now believed, they were cut to the heart. There was an attitudinal response of their heart to what they believed about Jesus. And as a consequence of the combination of that belief about Jesus and that attitude of their heart towards what had happened, they asked brothers, what shall we do? How should we act in response to the truth of this message about who Jesus is? Hence we have beliefs and attitudes and actions, and I think that's a pretty good general description of what a spirituality is. A spirituality is your way of of life, your way of relating to everything. It's about relationship with yourself, each other, the world around us, whatever you think of as the ultimate reality. 
You could, to make it a little bit more alliterative and memorable, think of it as how you relate to reality through your head and your heart and your hands. Now, I didn't come up with this. Uh, Some chap called Jesus seems to have got there before me, particularly in his answer to the question about what the greatest commandments are, where he says that true spirituality, the most important thing in your relationship with God, is that you love God with all of your heart, with all your attitudes, with all of your mind, including your, your worldview, your your understanding of the basic nature of reality, and with all of your strength, everything that you do. And you have to love God with your, well, your whole self, your whole spirituality, head and heart and hands, and that will lead you to loving your neighbour as yourself. These things become a a self-reinforcing loop, so I put it in a loop there, and we love God because he loves us, with all of our head, heart and hands, and we love our neighbour as ourself as a consequence. We have this relationship, and that feeds into this relationship. As Christian philosopher Douglas Groothouse warns, Christianity makes claims on the entire personality. Accepting it as true is not a matter of mere intellectual assent. It's not just a piece of trivia knowledge that you can store away for the next pub quiz. It's a matter of embarking on a new venture in life, a whole new way of living centred around Jesus. To truly understand Jesus the title of my book and this weekend that we've been doing is Understanding Jesus. You have to be willing, as a matter of your heart, you have to be willing to, and here's a bit of a pun, stand under the authority of the truth about Jesus to determine what you're going to believe about him. It's, it's the truth about Jesus, the facts of the matter, that should call the shots here, not what we would like to be true. You stand under the authority of the truth to determine your beliefs about Jesus, to determine your attitudes towards him, and determine your attitudes with respect to him. As Jesus said, whoever has ears, let them hear. You've got to be receptive to thinking about who Jesus is. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Reminds me, of a quote from the late, great G.K. Chesterton, who said that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it's been found difficult and left untried. To truly understand Jesus is therefore a matter of wisdom as well as knowledge. Wisdom as well as knowledge. What's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Well, I'd say this, that wisdom is a matter of having the right attitude towards knowledge. A matter of having the right attitude of your heart towards reality and your receptivity to letting reality call the shots rather than yourself. But it is important 
what message we hear about Jesus, as well as whether we're open to hearing that message. Uh, So let me lay in for a few slides to a recent RE textbook. Um, This is a key stage three RE textbook giving a description of Christian beliefs. It should uh, give us pause for thought about what's being taught in schools, I think. Here's what it says about Christian beliefs, particularly talking about beliefs about life after death in this section. It says, Whilst on earth, we have to try and lead a good life. After a person's death, God will judge them. God will look at everything that person did and said and thought in their lifetime. Those judged good will be rewarded. Those who have been evil will be punished. And I guess that is the concept of Christian religion that many people will pick up. And understandably, if this is the sort of thing that's being taught in textbooks in our schools. But there are a number of key problems with this description of Christianity. Problem number one. That description makes judgment, the judgment of God, a matter of arbitrary punishment rather than organic consequence. It's rather like the fact that if the traffic warden catches you parking on the double ghetto line, you'll get a certain monetary value fine. That's the punishment for the crime. Then in a sense, it's an arbitrary punishment. We could have decided that you'd have to do two hours community service. Or we could say, we'll give you a £50 fine. Um, or we'll say, um, you've got to do jury service. Or there's all sorts of things that we could have said to people, if you do this, we'll punish you by making you give something back to society, or give us some money, or do this, or do that. There's got to be some punishment for it. As long as it fits the crime, it doesn't really matter what that punishment is. There's no organic link between parking on the double yellow line and having to fork over 50 quid or whatever it is. On the other hand, if you drink too many pints of a Friday evening and you overindulge, the fact that you wake up with a terrible headache on Saturday morning is not an arbitrary punishment for what you've done, It's just the organic consequence of what you've done. Or, heaven forfend, if you drink too much and then you drive and you have an accident because of that and you kill someone, as an organic consequence of what you've done, your, your, your guilt over that consequence of your actions, that's not an arbitrary punishment what you've done. It's an organic consequence of what you've done. And I would suggest that that judgment and thinking of this link between sin and judgment might be much more like the organic consequence view than seeing God as someone like a traffic warden dishing out arbitrary punishments for breaking the rules. Put it in some biblical verses. Jesus says in John's Gospel, 
chapter 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Um, There is an organic relationship between knowing God in a personal relationship and having eternal life. Eternal life is actually something that can start here and now and will continue and flourish in eternity because of your relationship with God. Well, 1 John 5.11 says, God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. It's a matter of being in Christ, as the Bible talks about. There's an organic relationship here. The second problem with that Ari textbook description of Christianity is that it completely ignores the cross. It ignores divine forgiveness. It just sets up God as this judge or this traffic warden who's going to impose the fine or not, depending on whether or not you've broken the rules enough. There's no space in there for the central Christian concept of divine forgiveness. And thirdly, that description of Christianity fails to mention what we're saved for, what we're forgiven for. It ignores what a saving, eternal life relationship with God in and through Jesus means for our spirituality here and now. Far from being about gaining eternal life for ourselves by having the right sort of spirituality, by being good enough and all of that. Jesus' good news was about our humbly accepting eternal life in him as a free gift. A gift that enables us to enter into and live out the right kind of spirituality. It's not that you've got to get your spirituality right and then you'll meet the entrance exam conditions for heaven. It's you accept the free gift of forgiven relationship with God in Christ and that enables you to get your spirituality right or at least to continually get it better and have the hope that one day you will be so transformed in Christ that you will be in glory with him without any more guilt or sin weighing you down. Jesus' gospel, it's just a word that means good news, was the arrival of this new but long-planned, long-predicted, long-prophesied phase in God's relationship with creation and especially humanity. This gospel centred upon Jesus as the divine Son of Man who combined the roles of Messianic King with that of Suffering Servant. And you see... Uh, these different descriptions in the Old Testament prophecies about the nature of the Messiah. Jesus combines them in a way that his contemporaries really didn't quite expect. That suffering servant who was himself the, the divinely appointed, divine entry point into the spirituality of the kingdom of God or the, heaven, uh, the kingdom of heaven. Professor William Lane Craig, who's a Christian philosopher from America, says that one of the undisputed facts about Jesus of Nazareth is the centrality of the advent of the kingdom of God to his teaching. Moreover, it's clear, he says, that Jesus thought of himself as central to the coming of God's kingdom. 
Most New Testament critics acknowledge that the historical Jesus acted and spoke with a self-consciousness of divine authority and that he saw in his own person the coming of the long-awaited kingdom of God and invited people into its fellowship through fellowship, relationship with him. Jesus saw himself as much more than just a prophet called upon to teach or give an example of how to behave nicely or even to embody a spirituality of love for God, self and neighbour. He understood the kingdom of God as coming in and through his own ministry in person. He wants us to receive divine forgiveness by receiving him into our lives in such a way that we become a part of him. This is the meaning of, of, of the theological concept of communion. And actually, I've been greatly helped in understanding the, the meaning of the term communion by reading an atheist philosopher. Um, not everything atheist philosophers says is bad. Sometimes I read them for devotional purposes. This is a French atheist philosopher with the fantastic name of André Comte Sponville. But he puts it very well. He says, in his little book about spirituality, the book of atheist spirituality, he says, in monotheistic cultures, cultures that believe in one God, people are bound together, um, horizontally, so to speak, by the fact that all of them feel bound to God, vertically. It's like that the warp and woof of the religious material. The community of believers, community of believers, is as powerful as this double bond is solid. For it is communion that creates community. It's communion that creates community. Far more than the other way around. It is a communion that turns a human group into a community instead of a series of juxtaposed and competing individuals. And he uses this illustration of cake. It's a good thing to use as an illustration. I've had some fantastic cake at Mag's this weekend. To commune, he says, is to share without dividing. This may sound paradoxical, Where material goods are concerned, it is indeed impossible. People cannot commune in a cake. Because the only way to share it is to divide it. In a family or a group of friends, on the other hand, people can commune in the pleasure they take in eating a delicious cake together. I've enjoyed doing that this weekend. All share the same delectation, but without having to divide it up. When we enjoy together enjoying something, it's not that I have to get 3% of the enjoyment, even if I have to get 3% of the cake, because there's a lot of us trying to eat it. I found that a really helpful way of understanding the importance of communion and community in Christian spirituality. As Jesus put it, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm the, I'm the vine, and we get, in horticultural terms, grafted into 
the vine. We become made part of the fruitful kingdom of God by being joined in relationship to God through Christ. Now, as I was intimating in the kids' talk, Jesus doesn't want blind faith. The new atheists have unfortunately done a stonking advertising job in trying to get people to buy into this misconception that faith means blind faith. Even though the fact that you have to add the qualifier blind to the term faith should tip you off that there's a distinction between these two things. But here again is Jesus from John's Gospel. He says, believe me when I say I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. Believe me on my, my character and, and so on. Or at least believe on the evidence of the signs, the miracles themselves. He says, it's fine to believe in me because of the evidence I'm providing you through the miracles I'm working. Uh, or later on in John's Gospel, and this also comes in Luke's Gospel, so two uh, independent sources for this. He says, the works I do, which would include his miracles, the works I do in my Father's name testify about me. Now, if you want to dive a bit more into the testimony about Jesus and the evidence for Jesus, I think Kevin's still got a few copies of my book, Understanding Jesus, at knockdown bargain prices. Or, if you find it a bit too much of a doorstop and a bit daunting, uh, you could do a lot worse than get yourself a copy for Christmas of Doug Powell's Resurrection Eyewitness. So, I think it should be on everyone's Christmas list. So, let's take a stock a bit here. A positive response of your heart to the belief of your mind, that Jesus truly offers a relationship with God in and through his own person, is what constitutes a belief in Jesus, a belief that incorporates the individual into the communal spirituality of God's kingdom, um, which one theologian described as uh, the community called by God to love him and to express that love in service to others. What a lovely description of God's kingdom. The community called by God to love him and express that love in service to others. Dallas Willard is a a philosopher who writes a lot about issues about discipleship um, and uh, recovering the idea of Christian discipleship and so on. Um, And it might be the fact that I've taken too many degrees, but sometimes uh, in order to grasp something simple, I find myself having to read someone who uses some long words. Uh, It's a personal character flaw. Um, But I find this helpful, so maybe you will as well. Um, There's a simpler uh, way of putting it in the next slide. Dallas Willard says this, When I study anything, I take its order and nature into my thoughts and even into my feelings and my actions. Now, disciples of Jesus are people who want to take into their being the order of the kingdom of God. They devote their attention, their their commitment, their thoughtful inquiry, their practical experimentation to the order of the kingdom as seen in Jesus, in the written word of scripture, in others who walk in the way, and indeed in every good thing in nature, history and culture. And he argues that the result of this this thoughtful attention, not just a matter of the head, not just a matter of the heart, not just a matter of what you do, it's all of it together, 
The result of this thoughtful attention and experimentation is a process of personal and social transformation. It says confidence in, reliance upon Jesus, faith in Jesus as the Son of Man, the one appointed to save us, naturally leads to a desire to be his apprentice, to be his disciple, to be his apprentice in living. The abundance of life realised through apprenticeship to Jesus naturally leads to obedience. Obedience, with the life of discipline it requires, leads to and issues from a pervasive inner transformation of the heart and the soul. Or as Michael Wilkins puts it, uh, defining, definitions again, defining discipleship to Jesus, he says discipleship to Jesus is a matter of living a fully human life in this world, in union with Jesus Christ and his people, growing in conformity to his image and helping others to know and become like Jesus. There's that sharing of that communing in Jesus. So Jesus invites us to the life that is truly life, as it says in 1 Timothy. And he says this, I'm taking this from uh, Matthew's Gospel. Some of it has a similar passage in Luke as well. From the reading, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And those who seek, find and to those who knock the door will be opened that is the door to the kingdom of God the door to communing in God and God's kingdom through Jesus who is the door I am the way the truth and the life and so on Jesus says to us come to me all of you who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest give you God's peace God's shalom to use the Old Testament Hebrew word Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Be my disciple. Apprentice yourself to me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Discipling yourself to me is the way to finding a truly human existence. So, as we draw to a close, let me pose to you a few questions for you just personally to think about. If Jesus is who he said, would I want to receive him into my life by becoming his forgiven disciple? If he was really who he said he was, would I want to become his disciple? And if so... Am I genuinely, that is seriously, humbly, seeking to understand whether or not Jesus truly is who he said he was? And if so, do I yet believe that Jesus is who he said he was? Is who he claimed? And if I do, will I respond appropriately not merely by acknowledging a a fact in my head, but by acknowledging Jesus, by trusting him and entering into a Jesus-centred spirituality. Different people here might be at different stages of that process of thinking about how you're going to relate to Jesus.
Well, I'd like to end with a prayer. Uh, for some people here, you might just want to use this as a way of rededicating uh, your apprenticeship to Christ. Um, perhaps uh, I've hopefully given you a few useful insights that uh, deepen your understanding of what that means and you can use this as a way of, of re-tying yourself in to the vine. For some people here, maybe you will be at that stage in that series of questions of actually saying, yes, for the first time I want to uh, respond to Jesus, to acknowledge uh, Jesus uh, in my head and my heart and my hands. So, I'll uh, read this prayer out and if you want to, you can pray along in your own heads. Dear Jesus, I believe you are the divine Son of God. I know I need the forgiveness you offered by dying on a cross and evidenced by rising from the dead. I want a forgiven relationship with God through you and I want to live as your disciple forever. Please forgive me and accept me into your kingdom, communing with me by your Holy Spirit and helping me to worship you with all my mind, heart and strength. Thank you.